Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of By the Drip. This podcast is about coffee, entrepreneurship, and the people we meet through the amazing story of coffee. I'm your host, David Crosby, founder and CEO of Rosso Coffee Roasters. Joining me today is Mark and Eric, founders of the natural wine importer, Juice Imports. Cole Tarot of Ford Coffee joins me as co-host this week. We dive into the world of natural wines and how they compare to conventional wines. The team at Juice Imports talks about the importance of building relationships with like-minded producers and the value of seeking out and giving ourselves permission to enjoy unique experiences with food and drink. We also touch on the areas that coffee and wine intersect throughout our conversation. Maybe grab a glass of wine this week and enjoy my conversation with Eric and Mark from Juice Imports. Mark, Eric, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Got the founders of Juice Imports. Maybe introduce yourself so we can get our listeners to match the voice to the name. And then uh, what your guys' roles at Juice Imports is. And then maybe a bit about the origin story. I can start off if you want, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hulliard, Eric and I started this about five years ago. That's sort of, uh, I guess, five years as of September. I come from a totally different background. I come from sort of engineering project management. So I was in that for about 15 years. <laughs> I won't get into the whole story of why, why I made the switch, but uh, no regrets, certainly. I can't really begrudge it because it allowed me to, to sort of jump into this new world that I you know, the, the stress levels have gone down and my enjoyment of, of what I do on a daily basis is, is infinitely better. Maybe I'll let Eric introduce himself. Uh, and then we can kind of talk about like how, yeah, for got sure. started and uh, so yeah, Eric Mercier, I don't even know where to start. Essentially juice imports just to explain what that is, because I feel like we haven't even talked about that yet is a wine importing company. We import wines from all around the world, everywhere from the Czech Republic to South Africa, to Canada as well, too. And our focus is on uh, natural wines, so wines that are not only farmed in a in a sustainable way. Uh, most of our producers are using like regenerative agriculture, but then they're also following that through in the winery in the sense that they're not using any additives. So no coloring, flavoring, no GMO yeast, no enzymes, no sugar, no animal products for for fining purposes or whatever. And yeah, my whole movement into this thing was I worked at a wine shop for a bunch of years sort of outgrew my role there. And then fortunately, Mark came to all the tastings I did and was desperate to not work at his job anymore. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I'm literally willing to give you money in order to save me from uh, <laughs> having to work in this industry any longer. Yeah, we sort of put our heads together and with some huge support and help from our friends in the industry, they basically pushed us the direction of importing wine instead of, you know, we thought about opening a wine bar, which after the last couple of years of seeing our friends in the service industry really suffer, we're extra glad we decided to import instead of having to do that. But yeah, that's essentially the, the start of Juice. And Yeah, I mean, Eric took the helm, so to speak, for the first two years. I still had my full-time job, so I kind of helped out wherever I could. But really, yeah, it was, it was Eric on his own just... Literally pounding the pavement because he didn't have a car. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of walking, a lot of buses, uh, that sort of thing. But I um, still don't have a car if that counts for anything. Yeah. I'm still pounding the I think pavement. It, I think it sort of worked with our uh, our appeal, though, our aesthetic. It seemed to a lot of people kind of appreciated that. But yeah, after about two years, again, I was getting pretty antsy at that point. You know, we had kind of looked at maybe three years before I would join full time, but. 
basically I, I just one day kind of said to Eric, I was like, can we just like accelerate? There's the way if I put together a plan that allows us to, to bring myself on. And it's, it's always kind of the tricky thing in any business, I think, where, you know, you're kind of like, in order to bring me on, we need to be making enough revenue to like, you know, be able to pay my salary. But at the same time, like, there's just no way that one person could generate enough revenue yeah, for two, two people. Like, it's just, yeah. and so it was sort of the cart before the horse or whatever, like, you know, which, uh, when do you make that decision? But eventually, eventually we just had to say, you know, take the leap. Obviously it worked. <laughs> We're still here. We're still here. So <laughs> that's what we say too. Yeah. yeah. It's been a great run. And like I said, last September was five years and it was kind of a like, holy crap. Like how yeah. did that happen? How did, you know, it feels like it's been a long time, but also it feels like it's flown by. I don't know. So maybe for listeners, you kind of touched on it already, but what's the biggest difference between natural wine and do you call it conventional wine or just wine? Yeah, for sure. I think there's sort of like maybe three tiers here where it's, you have conventional wine, which means that you can do anything you want in the vineyard. So you can spray glyphosate, you can spray pesticides, herbicides, all that sort of stuff. You know, do whatever you want. Farming using robotic tractors is like a, a major thing that's going to be, you know, the way of the future using GPS and, and all these sort of things. And then in the winery, you can add virtually anything you want. The amount of wine uh, additives that you can add to a wine is, is actually sort of dumbfounding. So the next tier up from there, you have organic wines. Organic wines, hopefully the goal for most people who are farming organically is to be a little more sustainable, hopefully preserve soil health, help with both the microorganisms and the and the macroorganisms all the way down the food chain that you're affecting via having this vineyard. So you're at least thinking about that part of it. But organic wines are allowed to have up to 150 different additives. And those additives actually don't need to be organic because they make up a small enough portion of the actual end product. So you can still use, you know, the major one that I like to point out is that white wine is clarified using fish bladders. It's a product called Isinglass that, again, is basically shredded up dried fish bladders that clings to all the floaty particles in the wine that sinks to the bottom in this sort of like booger like substance. <laughs> you then filter that out and you end up with these like perfectly clear wines when really our thought process going towards natural wine is why do we care if our wine is is cloudy or not? And are those things that we were removing potentially actually beneficial for that wine? Or is it improving the flavor, the texture, all these sort of things? So natural wine is sort of like the, the logical endpoint of that thought process where not only are you farming in some sort of regenerative way, and usually our producers are are way over the threshold for what would be considered organic, you know, doing things like more permaculture style where they're planting cover crops that help, you know, put nitrogen into the soil, prevent soil erosion, increase the microbiology of the actual soil. They're not only doing that, but then they're following that through in the winery. So wild fermentations, so fermentations using only the indigenous yeast from the vineyard and from the winery, which again, come from the soil. So unless you have healthy soils, you can't really do wild fermentation, at least not making it taste any good. <laughs> and, you know, not coloring, not flavoring, not fining, not filtering. Again, there's exceptions to every rule. Uh, most of our producers do add a small amount of SO2, so sulfur dioxide, as a preservative, but they're adding, you know, less, less than a fifth of what you'd see in a conventionally made wine. I always use the example of Kim Crawford's Sauvignon Blanc has somewhere between 150 and 200 parts per million of sulfur added to it versus our producers, I think, they're usually falling somewhere between 20 and 40 parts per million of sulfur. So substantially less. And that's the only additive. There's no other things also being added. That's kind of the extent of, of what's different between conventional versus organic versus natural because of the ways that that natural wine is made. Again, wild fermentation, farming, it's usually on a much smaller scale 
than with conventional producers. Like if you take literally every single winery that we have, add up their entire production, it's still less than what Mission Hill makes in a single year. And we work with like 50 different producers. <laughs> so you take like 50 internationally recognized amazing producers that are making essentially as much as they physically can in a year, and they can only make, again, a fraction of what, what Mission Hill makes in a year via conventional winemaking and farming practices. Probably important to note, there are no rules to natural winemaking. Like it's it's not a, I mean, there are certainly certifications you can get for organic, biodynamic, like all these different things. But even just within sort of the natural wine world, there are arguments all the time about, you know, what constitutes fully natural. You know, producers that don't even want to touch the wine. They don't want to stir it. They don't want to do anything because that's that's intervening. Adding SO2 is intervening. Um, and so it's it's there's no there's no one definition that's been accepted. You know, I think maybe certain wine boards are starting to come up with their own definitions for it, but it, there's no rule. So it's more like a philosophy than it is set hard fast rule. And I, and I also think people kind of go down the road of believing that natural wine is like super funky and and weird as as like a standard. That has nothing to do with it. It just it, I think yeah. it has more to do with the winemakers that are taking this approach. Just tend to be. A, trying new experiments and trying new things, but you can make super classically styled you know, Burgundy or Bordeaux or any of these mm -hmm. wines, you know, sort of in a more regenerative farming and, and natural way. I mean, I, I don't think you could make big, heavy Napa cabs in a natural way necessarily. But. No, you can't make natural pothic yet. But, <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In your point of view, is that a benefit to the overall movement industry? How do you, how do you, classify natural wines right now? Is it is it an industry sector? Is it a movement overall? I, I think it's the way that it's really interesting. I always I always sort of equate it to, you know, like art in a sense where it's like the the quest for a very long time was was perfection. It was like, and then we got photographs and we're like, cool, photographs are great, but then, you know, you have this whole movement towards sort of more expressionist styles, abstract expressionism and, and things like that. And I think that's what the natural wine movement is a great in, in a lot of ways is like we got too technical with wine for a while there where we were undoing the thing that is so beautiful about wine, which is that it is a reflection of nature. It is a reflection of place and time, you know, in the wine world we call terroir. And so this movement towards this, this sort of like very sterile approach to winemaking where, uh, you know, there's not a single bug in the entire vineyard, the, you know, all the grapes look you know, the exact same regardless of where you are in the region, even from region to region, there's no difference. It's you have the exact same grape planted in, you know, New Zealand, as you do in Napa, you're fermenting with the same store-bought yeast in either of those places. You know, you're controlling every single variable to the, to the end goal of uh, a certain ideology of deliciousness. We, we've said, this is what's delicious. And that's the only thing that can be delicious. And everybody on earth should be questing for that one type of deliciousness. And then we kind of got to a point where we're like, that isn't the way that things are. There are beautiful experiences that are, are you know, sad experiences or, or when there's discord in a song, sometimes that's the most powerful moment. And so I think the movement right now is away from sort of that industrialized, again, sterile, predictable version of wine and more back towards wine as, again, an art form, but that is used to express a certain place, a certain time, even cultural identity from particular regions that have been making wine for thousands of years. Uh, in, in some cases, you know, like seven or 8,000 years, if you look at, at the Republic of Georgia. So it's, yeah, I, I think that that's sort of the direction that we're going. I think that's an important thing. But because of that, 
again, all these guys are a little, uh, you know, eccentric uh, to say the very least, if this is their goal, it's like trying to get a bunch of painters to agree on like what a certain style of painting is like, Oh, this all falls under this specific category. You're like, well, if you do this, then it's not, if you use a brush, it's not, if you do this, it's not, you're like, well, so that's the problem is that these people don't want to fall under a category. And so they're not willing to be, you know, governed by any sort of body. Uh, they collaborate a ton with one another, and I think they do have similar ideologies, And but I think it is the, the difference between them that really drives them in a lot of ways. Is natural wine the movement? Has it been going on for the last like, 20, 30 years? Yeah. Essentially what happened is that during World War II, we got super good at manipulating food products and the agriculture industry. We got really good at producing chemical fertilizers, for instance, was like a massive thing that happened during uh, World War One and World War II, we figured out what plants needed and we're like, cool, we can make that and we'll just dump a bunch of it, you know, all over everything. Pesticides and herbicides, again, a lot of that was developed during World War II, both to help increase crop loads so that you could feed, uh, you know, armies, but also, again, potentially used as weapons. <laughs> and so a lot of this stuff was was used. We borrowed a lot of things from the uh, from the dairy industry, like their filtration systems and their tanks and their refrigeration. And so basically from World War II onwards, it was this sort of like technological revolution where we became very obsessed with technology and how it could be used for wine to make things that were more stable, uh, more consistent, things that they could export around the world. And so that was a huge movement. And then all of a sudden we get to sort of the, the 80s and we're like, cool, our soils are dead. People who work in the vineyards are getting sick. The wines are aging less long. They're becoming less and less interesting. Wine around the world is all of a sudden all tasting the same. Whether you're drinking a wine from, from Burgundy or a wine from California, they all start to have this similarity as opposed to historically, every single town, the wine tasted different. And there was a handful of producers, most notably in uh, this region called Beaujolais in, in just south of Burgundy in, or Burgundy proper in France. And they, again, sort of this group of people got together and were like, well, what if we just like stop doing all that stuff and make wine the way that our parents did or our grandparents did? Will they taste better? Will they feel better? Will we want to work in the vineyard more than we do now? Will we you know, stop getting sick, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, that's kind of like the, the, I don't know, the starting point of modern natural wine, I would say, was, was, again, Beaujolais sort of in that time. It expanded outwards to include places like, um, like on the border of, of uh, Italy and Slovenia. You started having producers start making wine this way, and that became a secondary hub. Then you started seeing it in places like Austria. In Austria, again, it's, it's wild the amount of incredibly talented natural winemakers that you see there. And so there, there started being all these different hubs. More recently than that, even you have Australia. And the amount of natural wine coming out of Australia is like, you can't even keep up. It's, it's unbelievable. We sort of had this, this starting point in France. Then it sort of radiated outwards. The Loire Valley was sort of maybe a secondary location where you saw this. But there's always been producers that have made wine this way. There are producers who never started using pesticides and herbicides, never started using chemical fertilizers, always just did things the way that they, they've always done them. There's sort of these, these two competing worlds, one where it's like, ah, oh, we discovered natural wine, and one where it's like, yeah, we've kind of actually always been doing it this way, so we're not really part of the movement because <laughs> we're not really against anything because we never really took up anything. That's that funny thing where you know people have this notion of natural wine, 
And we say to them, but well, no, there are these other winemakers in Burgundy who have never been doing that. And their bottles go for hundreds of dollars. You know, their wines go for hundred dollars a bottle. And, uh, but, but they don't classify themselves as natural wine. Cause they're just like, why would I put pesticides on my vines? I'm going to drink this. Like why? Um, and so they, so again, it's, I, I think like the term natural wine has often been associated with that sort of wilder new trend, if you will. Uh, and, and I always push back on that a little bit. I do get that there's a movement. Um, but I also think it's, it's just something that's kind of always existed and now it's just being pushed to the forefront. It's how we started historically making wine. Yeah. And then there was this in between time where we forced it down a different path, created a whole bunch of governance. And then there's almost a rebellion going against the governance, going back to how we started something like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's like I see with a lot of industries right now, we're kind of going in these divergent directions of like more boutique, more artisanal, you know, smaller batch. And then like, how can we make more mass produced products for cheaper? Yeah. Uh, what, was, what was that thing that Devin sent us the other day? It was like Oreo flavored barefoot. Or oh yeah. Like, something oh, like that. Oh yeah. It's just wine it's just infused. So egregious, but, but Oreos, but there is a market for it. Yeah. Unfortunately. So for sure. I mean, you're, you're seeing that, uh, like I said, in, in any, I mean, I'm sure you guys see that in, in the coffee industry where it's, you know, there, there does seem to be a push towards better coffee, like a better understanding of the processes and better ethical treatment of the farmers and all this. And then there's like the big coffee giants just. It's really interesting in, in coffee. We've never intervened with commercial yeasts until five years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's a dialogue on, is that beneficial? Is that going to elevate my product? Or is it going to to just you know put it into this line that is defined by the yeast? And am I going to lose my personal character, my farm's personal character? You know the flavor of terroir and and all of those beautiful elements that stack together to to make a great cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. We're kind of in a way going the opposite way in some sense to to what we're seeing in the wine world. And of course we're outsiders looking into the wine world, but admiring and and borrowing you know influence and concepts that structure i think that the wine world has that coffee does not like the systematic approach to tasting wine i think is is brilliant we don't have that in coffee we take a sip of the cup and we say it's good yeah or it's bad and you know that's our professional opinion of course we can go further than that but there's there's no proper way that everybody starts and finishes an evaluation of coffee so there's a lot of I would say a lot of elements that we we borrow, and one of them is yeast inoculations mm-hmm. happening right now, and and people trying to find consistency batch to batch because at the moment everything is is naturally occurring in the fermentations and, yeah. and the way we're producing coffees. And this is the thing that's interesting too is that uh, again we were talking about this earlier, but the idea that sixty percent of the flavor of a wine comes from the yeast, not from the fruit, and so. There's a handful of implications here. One is that if you're using yeast developed in a lab for particular flavors, you're getting rid of 60% of the potential for uniqueness and translation of place. Because the particular combination of yeast that you have in any given vineyard is entirely unique. A fermentation usually is, is somewhere between, you know, let's say, 8 and 30 different yeast species doing that fermentation, most of which are fermenting within the first couple percentage of, uh, percent of alcohol. Uh, so between, you know, zero and 4% alcohol, you, you could have 25 different yeasts 
take over at every you know half a degree of alcohol or whatever. And so that's that's a huge potential for flavor. It's also a huge potential for things to go wrong, depending on how you sort of look at these things. So the yeast that make the bad flavors tend to only survive at certain pH levels, at certain uh, sugar levels, at certain temperatures. And so if you're growing grapes specifically to have you know, lower pH, so higher acidity, you're not going to end up with those spoilage microorganisms. So your fermentation, the, the, the flavor profile of the fermentation and what the yeast can do can be affected by your farming. And that's what people have sort of gone back to is, is this idea that a lot of people say that natural wine is making wine like we did 100 years ago. But the thing is, we didn't know any of this stuff 100 years ago. So we didn't know which variables to control. Now we're making wine the way that we did 100 years ago, but we understand everything that's happening underneath. So if something does go wrong, we can take a look at our farming to affect those changes, whether that be cool, we need a little bit more alcohol for this wine to be more stable. Cool, we're going to have a little bit lower crop. We're going to do this. We're going to do this for canopy management. So, so the amount of leaves that you have on a vine, where those leaves are placed on the vine, those are like little micro changes that you can make in the vineyard. You can change your, your fertilizer regime. Maybe you're using bat guano before and you're like, oh no, we should go to sheep and do green manure instead. Maybe that's what we need. And all those things are affecting the way that the yeast then interprets those wines because the other component of this that we were talking about is that that 60% of flavor that's created by the yeast, that's in correlation with things that were already in the grape. There are certain flavors in a grape that are non-volatile, meaning that we can't smell them. We can't you know, we, we can't detect them. But what the yeast do is they take those what we call flavor precursors and they break them down into something that we can smell. So it still is coming from the grape. It still is coming from the vineyard, but we are unable to detect them. And if you're adding a genetically modified yeast that's, that is maybe not expressing all those characters, maybe the best example of all time is New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, everybody's like, oh, it has such a distinctive characteristic. Like, yeah, but if you're if you actually make New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc as like a natural wine, it's not as dis- I, I think it's still distinctive, but it doesn't have that that New Zealand what we associate with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And the reason for that is, A, they've they've developed a yeast that ferments at like four per- or at a four degrees. So like really, really cold. Normally, fermentation happens between, you know, 15 and, and 30 degrees Celsius. So they, they've genetically modified a yeast to be able to ferment at super, super low temperatures, which means that you're capturing flavors that that don't exist in the real world, essentially. Not only that, but this yeast creates flavors that are really hard to get out of natural yeast, the, the main ones being like passion fruit. So when you have that wine, it's not something that's like unique to New Zealand. It's literally a process that just happened to be invented in New Zealand. And it's like now it's become the defining character of New Zealand wines, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which is less about climate, more about process, which, again, is interesting from a cultural perspective. But it's less interesting if your goal is to express a place and a time uh, and a specific vineyard. Is, is that what you would say the goal for natural wine producers is, is expressing time, place and, and vineyard? I, yeah, I'd say that's. For us, the most interesting thing that natural wine can do, obviously these guys still need to make money. And so they do also, you know, often make wines that we would call like uh, vein de soif. So like thirst quenching wines. 
or, uh, you know, glue glue, like glug glug, essentially, <laughs> uh, wines that are like, Hey, cool. Like not every site is worth expressing <laughs> essentially. So they're like, yeah, we have some vineyards planted in places that, you know, we've tried and that they're just never going to make anything that's like, that's, you know, novel worthy. They're not that exciting. They're, they're delicious. So, you know, there's still room for those wines in the world as well, too. And that's what we drink, you know, at least 50% of the time. We I was like, crushable a lot. Yeah. yeah. Crushable. Some people took offense to, I think when we first started, started out, uh, including my dad, but, um, uh, words like refreshing and crushable. He's like, you can't say that about wine. Those are things that wine is supposed to be. And now, you know, five years on people, I've, I've heard lots of people using those same words to describe a lot of the wines that are, well, it's juice, right? It's in, yeah, the, it's yeah. in the name I mean, of your business. Totally. Yeah. And, and Eric's famous line, he's like, it's a beverage. If it doesn't quench your thirst, it's failing at its number one, like purpose for yeah, being totally. I'm sure you feel the same way about coffee too, where it's like, if coffee is flat, and isn't like uplifting you, then it's like, that's kind of the base threshold for me is like, it's I want boring. Yeah, exactly. My palate for coffee is the exact same as it is for wine. Like I like high acidity. I like bright flavors. I like transparency. I like all those sort of things. Like I like delicacy. I like, you know, you know, there's lots of crossover from a, from a flavor and stylistic perspective. I feel like or tasting coffee with coffee people is the most stressful thing in the world for me. Because a lot of the flavors that are considered totally okay in the wine world that I detect in coffee, people, coffee people freak out. They're like, oh my God, like he just said mushroom. Like we, <laughs> right. we have to burn a down the building. Like, don't say that. Yeah, totally. Like, oh, there's like a nice like tartness here. And yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, like, yeah. no, no. Like just talk about the, the sweetness. Secondary yeah. tertiary flavors of wine don't oh, yeah. really come into coffee. Totally. And again, like this is, uh, you know, not like a criticism necessarily, but it's the same thing that we experience in wine where it's like, unless it was dark fruit and oak, if you were to use any other descriptors in wine in the nineties and early two thousands, people would be like, Oh, that's not good. I don't want that at all. Versus now, you know, when we talk about like mushroom and tobacco and, you know, cheese rind and like earthiness and all these sort of things, people are like, yo, like those flavors are, are there. Therefore, they deserve to be there. And therefore, you know, maybe they're making something that's interesting. And I think, you know, not to make predictions on somebody else's industry, but I think it'll be that way. Like maybe, you know, 50 years from now in coffee, where all of a sudden some of the things that were maybe considered not as interesting. And I think it's like, again, once you hit that pinnacle of sweetness, like that, that, that quest that you had, that's the thing is like wine hit that pinnacle of sweetness in the late 90s, where it's like, cool, we can make wines that are 15% alcohol super ripe, really extracted, really intense, really delicious, but we've done it. And now everybody in the world can do it because our technology is that good. Uh, our farming is that good. And then it became sort of less interesting once everybody could do it. And so th there had to be a new goal. We had to change the, the goalpost. And it was, it was, now it's like an expression of place that is really unique. Again, I think you can do both at the same time, but it's uh, interesting to see the parallels. I think Okay, we got a great baseline for what natural wine is. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the very beginning of you guys starting the business. Mm -hmm. How hard was it knocking on doors, walking and knocking on doors, convincing, you know, shops <laughs> to carry natural wine? I imagine it's like a product category that some wine, wine shops like just don't have. Yeah, especially in Alberta. Yeah. Yeah, and we're talking sure. we're in Alberta. <laughs> big big yeah. red reds and steak country. Yeah, exactly. And if you like say the word organic around here, they're 
you know, people shake a fist at you. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really interesting starting it off. I was really lucky in the sense that I worked at Vine Arts and a lot of what I did was working with restaurants, whether that be, you know, curating wine lists or finding products to fill holes and, and that sort of thing. So I already had connections and that's the biggest thing. Whenever somebody's like, oh, I really want to start an importing agency. How hard is it to, to find wines to bring in? I was like, it's very easy to find wines to bring in. It's like, again, you guys like probably buying coffee is probably the, the easier part. Selling coffee is the hard part. Same thing in the wine business where it's nobody thinks about that. They, they think like, oh, yeah, like I bet I can find a really good wine that nobody's had before. That's great. Can you sell 50 cases of it? Uh, you know, can you sell it at a price point where you can actually make money really, you know, uh, and again, it's, it's a, it's a huge shout out to, to Vine Arts after working there for like four years, every industry person, uh, every person who worked in, in food and beverage would come into Vine Arts. And so I knew everybody already. So it was really great when we started up and I could just go essentially pour wine for my friends. Not only that, but we had a totally different business model for a handful of reasons. Number one was our goal was not to bring in wines that were already available on the market, which is what every other wine importing agency did. They're like, cool, what are the most famous regions? Bordeaux, Chianti, you know, California. I will bring in one of each of those at the exact same price point, the exact same style as everybody else. And my whole thought was like, hey, I'm a wine geek. There are other wine geeks out here. Let's bring in wines that aren't already available here. Let's bring in wines from the Czech Republic. Let's bring in orange wine. Let's bring in you know, cool grape varieties that nobody's ever heard of before or from, you know, regions in California that people were less familiar with. The Sierra Foothills, which are, are beautiful and make really great wine, but everybody just wants to drink Napa and, and Santa Barbara. And so we wanted to appeal to a very small percentage of the market to begin with. And we just decided like nobody else is doing it. So all those people who are actually interested in, in geeking out about wine, there's nobody really there for them, there were, again, there always have been really great wines imported into Alberta, but there was nobody who like, that was their stance. Everybody had, you know, their, their $20 Argentinian Malbec that made all the money. And then they would maybe have a couple passion projects versus like, we're like, how can we have a portfolio that is exclusively passion projects? By not making any money. By not making any money, uh, for sure. Yeah, you don't want to see our financials for the first couple of years. But yeah, so th that was the major thing. And then the other thing was, was this idea of natural wine, which was, again, getting into regenerative farming. And this is the thing is like six months before we started Juice, it's not like we are huge natural wine advocates. It just, when we were starting our importing agency and thinking about what we wanted to do, we looked at the producers that weren't available on the market that we liked, and they just all happened to fall into this category. And so for me, it was immediately this correlation between farming and this sort of minimalist winemaking and translating flavors that I found really interesting. It wasn't sort of like, I don't know, I, I didn't plan on like save the world via, you know, wines that are farmed without you know, glyphosate, like that wasn't the goal. I was like, I like the way that these things taste and they're exciting to me. And then everything else sort of fell in place through there. I fell in love with agriculture via natural wine, not the other way around. Selling natural wine in Alberta was like, it was just silly. We were the only Alberta-based full-time natural wine importer when we started. There was one other Alberta-based one, but he was a lawyer who imported a handful of wines on the side as a passion project. Shout out to Vino Alvino for doing it, you know, back in the day. And then the only other ones were, there was this one agency in BC 
and they literally had no employees in Alberta. And it was just if a wine shop reached out to them and were like, hey, can we put one of your wines on our shelf? They would transfer it over from BC uh, and it became available. So we were the only people here doing this. Not only that, but we were the first importing agency to really start doing like pop-ups and tastings and be more customer focused because we can't sell to customers. Like if anybody out there listening right now wants to buy wine from us, you can't. So historically, importers have had absolutely no reason to talk to consumers. They're like, all we do is sell wine to wine shops. And then the wine shops then sell it to the people. So their job is talking to people. But for us, our thought was, A, like, that's what I like doing. I like talking to people. You know, I like introducing people to wines for the very first time and and having them, you know, that light go off in their head the same way that it happened for me. So it's, I, I like that part of it. And also our wines are hard to sell. Uh, so if, if we brought in a wine that we're like, this is going to be impossible to sell, we need to go out and find 30 customers to buy this so that we can convince a store to bring it in. We would do that. So we were sort of doing both ends of the job at the same time, not really getting paid for either of them, but that's sort of how we made it work. And then it eventually just grew to a level where it was sustainable. The amount of work that we have to do is like uh, astonishing because we bring in like 500 different wines, yet our company is like two and one eighth of a person. <laughs> uh, we, we have our, our, our pal also Mark in Edmonton, but he only works two days every two weeks. So it's, it's very minimal. Other than that, it's just the two of us. And if you look at a normal portfolio, it's like 20 people in Alberta working on it with one person does corporate clients and one does more boutique shops and et cetera, et cetera. One does licensees only. And so like restaurants, and their portfolio will be 100 wines. So we're two people selling 500 wines, 90% of which we get less than 60 bottles a year of for all of Alberta. And we also sell in Saskatchewan and the Yukon. And so it's like the amount of work that we've given ourselves is actually just, it's, it's a very bad idea. We're really, uh, <laughs> really good business. Yeah, we're really, really, really yeah, business it's a terrible <laughs> idea. But at the same time, like obviously we really love what we do and it gives us the opportunity to work with producers that we really respect. It allows us the opportunity to like, essentially say no, which has never been a thing for wine importers in Alberta. Like basically wine importers in Alberta, we get, we get shit on like all the time. Like you're, you're getting kind of like chomped on both ends in the sense that like if a producer raises their price, you know, we should in theory have to raise our prices and that translates, but you know, restaurants are like, yeah, I can't sell it for that price. You have to, you have to take the cut or they, they need sample bottles and all these sort of things. And so, you know, a, a lot of reps are willing to do pretty much anything to sell a bottle of wine, whether that be stocking shelves at, you know, our, our <laughs> a notorious wine shop here in Alberta, or, you know, buying people televisions and like watches and bribing people and like all this crazy shit that happens behind the scenes. We're like, no, absolutely not. We are not doing any of that stuff. We're only working with people that we want to, if an account gets too challenging to deal with, like they're, they're, you know, making unfair demands or, or not willing to meet us halfway or not willing to be collaborators, then it's like, no, we, we just, we honestly don't have the time. You know, we're only two people. We don't have time to, to do that sort of thing. And we just don't want to. It's an interesting business model. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I don't know if we, I'd suggest it. Because we kind of made that philosophy. Uh, I don't know if we had that philosophy from the beginning, but it definitely sort of morphed into that where, I mean, part of it for me was just like, I spent my career dealing with annoying situations and unruly clients and just having miserable conversations day in and day out and just high stress levels. And it's like, I don't want any of that. So, you know, I'm all on board if we just want to say like, we're not dealing with people who are tough to deal with. 
I think our philosophy has kind of gotten to that point because at one point it was like, well, how do we keep growing? And it's like, well, we have to work with bigger and bigger customers and bigger and bigger restaurants and chains and all these things. But kind of the hoops you you have to jump through for for a lot of these things. And I mean, the fact is we, in most cases, we don't bring in enough of any one wine that it matters anyway, or at a price point they want. But, you know, we've even, we've had a few discussions on this recently, especially having, you know, turned five and kind of being like, take a step back. Hey, like now to where do we go? And we've had a few situations recently where we've discussed it and it's just like, no, we're not going to play ball with that. We're not going to do something that's, you know, we feel is ethically unacceptable because then we're just no better than, you know, even, even if it means that we're not going to get that business, it's just not worth it. Like someone, someone has to stand up and, and not do those yeah. things, you know? I wish it wasn't us. I know. I wish it wasn't <laughs> us, but uh, like, I wish we could just be like lounging in like Cancun right now <laughs> or like, you know, one of the, you know, wine importers with the Rolex on. Yeah, exactly. He just gets like flown to Bordeaux once a year. Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice to be that sometimes. <laughs> but then be. I think about the conversations they have to have and I'm like, I am unwilling to have those conversations. Yeah. Well, and we see it too, like where, you know, these big agencies, they have like, they have sales reps and the sales reps have sales targets and, you know, they have this many samples to hand out and whatnot. Like, obviously they want the company to do well so that they can do well, but if a restaurant or shop asks them for some some extra bottles, you know, to help pad their budgets or or whatever, these reps are like, yeah, if it means I'm going to sell like a bunch of cases, then great. But I look at it, I'm like, it's just us. We see the bottom line of our business. Like, well, you, you know, the rep can just kind of turn it aside and, and it's the, up to the owners to deal with. Like, well, we are the owners. So anytime we give away sample bottles, like that's coming directly out of our bottom line. And so it's it's... You know, we have to be very realistic about like, is this going to be profitable for us? This podcast is sponsored by Rosso Coffee Roasters. You can check out the Home Coffee Plan subscription on the website, www.rosocoffeeroasters.com. This week's subscription coffee is from Finca Potosi in Colombia. It's an easy drinking coffee that is comprised of Katura and Colombia varietals. It's fully washed. And I'm drinking a cup of it right now. And to me, it tastes a little bit like dried fruits, a bit of honey, and a nice milk chocolate finish. Enjoy sipping on some of this amazing coffee while listening to my chat with Eric and Mark from Juice Imports. How do you guys find wine producers? Are they reaching out to you at this point or you're seeking them out now? Definitely like a hundred producers a week reach out to us and ask if we'll import their wine. This is the thing is like, there's a lot of wine made in the world and, and all of them need to export. Uh, I guess not all of them, but most of them need to export. So yeah, we, we honestly have at least a dozen a week for sure for, for me in my inbox asking like, Hey, will you import our wine? And we almost universally say no. The way that we find wines is by tasting internationally is like the, the number one thing that we do. Again, if you're a small producer who's making really, really good wines, where are the first places that you're going to want to export to? You're going to want to export to London. You're going to want to export to Tokyo. You're going to want to export to New York. And so they get access to things really early on in you know a winemaker's career. Or again, there could be a philosophy change or vineyards are coming of age and all of a sudden these wines are just like spectacularly good. And so the way that we find out about them is by having sort of, you know, sommeliers who sort of act as the, these sort of industry mentors almost around the world where you can sort of look at what they're putting on the list, get excited about it. Next time you're traveling, taste it. And then the major thing is visiting wineries, going and actually visiting these people, whether that be at a wine fair where 
there's a bunch of producers all pouring their wines and you can kind of get an opportunity to taste a bunch of things all at once. A lot of it is actually going to the physically to the producer wherever they are in the world and and going and tasting and seeing the vineyard because this is the thing is it's, it's like anything in this realm of you know quote unquote natural products there's a lot of greenwashing that happens and we want to make sure that that's not the case with the producers we're working with we want to go to the vineyard we want to see the soils we want to see the vines you can tell really quickly whether a vineyard is actually being farmed organically or not or at least in a way that's actually good for the environment. There's a lot of papers being released that commercial organic farming is actually way worse for the environment than thoughtful conventional farming. So if you're using a very small amount of, of chemical pesticides and herbicides, it's way better than using a lot of organic pesticides and herbicides. And so we want to go, we want to see the vineyard, we want to see the winemaking process. Ideally, we want to taste wines across multiple vintages so we can see that there's a consistency and talk to the producers. There's producers that we've loved the wines, thought the farming was amazing, and we haven't gotten along with the person who makes it. And we've said, no, no, we don't want to bring these wines. We could sell them easily. There's examples of producers where we're like, yeah, this is an easy sell. Packaging's great. Farming's great. Wines are delicious. Lots of hype. I don't like the guy. I don't really want to support him, you know? And so it's, yeah, there's definitely situations like that. And so for us, it has to be the whole package. It has to be everything. It has to be we're very selective, but we also have a list of a hundred more producers we'd like to bring in. There's no shortage of really amazing winemakers in the world from really disparate regions and and styles. And yeah, I think you know certainly from my perspective, not having been full time for the full first two years and and seeing what Eric was doing, you know, it certainly helped to sort of be out on the forefront. I mean, certainly there were some some agencies, as Eric mentioned, bringing in some some pretty cool stuff. So there's there's some pretty legendary, you know, natural wines that were sort of already on our market, but but kind of getting on board with was sort of this new wave. You know, Eric was able to go out and sign a whole bunch of really top end producers at the very beginning, kind of before anybody else got word of them or, or got into them, which, you know, again, was a tough sell, like selling, selling $60 Austrian Blaufrankish, you know, with the face on the label <laughs> in terms of like, you know, God, was, you know, not the easiest sell at first, but, uh, and actually is still, you know, not, not the easiest sell, but it's, it's, uh, wine, you know, wines we really believe in and we love, we love them as producers. And, but at the beginning, it really was Eric working hard, sending emails, reaching out to people, trying to get allocations. And then it was, it was kind of neat because really after those two years, those first two years, you started to see the switch where, the number of emails I started getting from like, holy crap, this winery is reaching out to us and the, and just seeing like they were seeing our portfolio and they were like, okay, we want to sell our wine in Alberta or in, in Canada. Like this is the portfolio we need to be a part of. And we've even seen that with a few wineries um, that have switched over to our portfolio kind of for the same philosophy. They've realized like, Hey, like we want to be associated with all of these other producers. And it's also known that if you're in the juice portfolio, here's your philosophy you know, here's your winemaking process to a certain extent. Here's your farming. It's it's like already built in. But uh, Eric's also been a master of the uh, the sob, not necessarily sob story, but kind of the um, oh we've, got, we've got a couple of producers <laughs> lately where it was just kind of, you know, we'd be after a couple of bottles of wine, we'd be sitting around and be like, I wonder if we could just get this producer. And then Eric would put together this email with like, this story about how him and his father drank this wine. Or, it's a, okay. Or like, it's a real wow. story. Oh, they're, always, Send that to they're, always, they're always real stories. Like I'm not, but it's, it's got a picture from when he drank it in New York at this bar in 2016 and it changed his life and all of this sort of stuff. And all these producers be like, wow, we didn't really have any wine to sell you, but 
but your story was so nice that uh, I'm very persuasive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually you know very beneficial that we've got uh, a poet. <laughs> the the actual story is there was more than one. But. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's there's more than one story, but that particular story is so. There's a champagne producer named Christophe Mignon. And these wines are like legendary, sought after around the world. You know, you can find them on, on lists like Noma, like on like the number one restaurant in the world. That's where you can find this champagne. And he's really small. He doesn't make a ton of wine. And so every year, my dad lives in like uh, Western New York, like in the middle of nowhere, essentially. But most of the, the wine shops in New York City will ship for free anywhere within New York State because nobody in Western New York is ordering wine, so they're not really getting dinged on, on, on sales uh, necessarily or on shipping. Anyway, so every year for Christmas, I would go home and I'd visit my dad and we'd order like a couple crazy cases of wine. He also really likes wine. I think I've converted him a little bit. We drink these wines together. And so every year on Christmas, we'd order a bottle of Christophe Mignon and we'd order a different one every year. And I'd had it previously once before and it was spectacular. And so I, I, you know, I knew. And then the pandemic hit. All of a sudden, visiting Western New York, not really an option anymore. And so it was going to be my first Christmas away from my dad for a really long time. It's the one time a year I see him. And so I like was looking through pictures on my phone of like the last couple of years that I had visited him. Christophe Mignon Champagne came up multiple times. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I know that the chances of us getting an allocation are really slim, but you know what? I'm a little drunk right now. Uh, <laughs> it's like... I don't know, one in the morning, we had been drinking wine all night. Mark, you know, I think he came over to my place. I can't quite remember. And so he had gone home and then it was just like me sitting there, like drinking one final glass of wine. I was like, I'm going to send them a message. And so I was like, this is, this is the deal. This is why I want your wines here is so that I can like share that experience with, with other people. And that's the thing about most of the wines in our portfolio is that we do have a connection to these people. These people are our friends. Like these, these people We've gone and visited them. We've gone on epic adventures with some of these winemakers and, and you know, had crazy meals with the them and with their families in their, yeah. in their like dining rooms. And totally. Yeah. And so, you know, it's to have that emotional connection to the wine. It's not really selling anymore. Like we know the wine is good. That's that's the thing is like we are never really like trying to sell wine. We're just telling people about it and they'll realize that A, it's delicious, and B, there's all these other reasons to, to really want to support this producer. Because that's ultimately what you're, what you're doing, is we've curated a portfolio of producers that we think other people would like to support. They're not here to tell their story, so hopefully we can be here to tell the story. Anyways, they thought the, the email was delightful. And so it meant that we were able to get a very tiny allocation, like a, you know, I think this year it's less than a half pallet of wine, the equivalent of 20 something cases. Wow. Uh, we should buy one. Yeah. Yeah. You should. Great. They're you great. They're, they're available <laughs> at Bricks. Uh, we get so little of it okay. that there's only one wine shop in Calgary that okay. can actually get it, which is Bricks. They get one shipment a year and then it's, then it's gone. Anyways, very delicious. But yeah, so it's, it's the emotional connection to the wine as much as it is everything else. It's important, right? Like to, to know where the product's from and, and follow it through the journey and, mm -hmm. and be involved and, People want that. We see that in coffee. People want to know where their coffee is from. Not everybody, but but it's starting to be more and more people are, are actively engaged in how it's produced, where it's produced, who produced it, how we got it here. I, I have a lot of questions on what you guys just talked about. I think I think before I jump into a question, you know, good for you for hitting the point where people are reaching out to your brand rather than your cold calling people and and hoping to get a response. I think that's 
that's pretty brilliant. And that's, that's a huge testament to the work that you have been doing over the past five years. So congratulations on that. Does that happen with you guys? Do you get to a point where like people reach out to you? Yeah. Like cafes will. Oh, cafes will for sure. But even like producers. Producers will too, but the bulk of them are, are very conventional. You know, I've, I've got a container of coffee at this price point and it scores this thing and there's no traceability or transparency on it. And it's like, okay, cool, cool. I do too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can get that anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so mo most of it is very conventional. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we're looking for, for more producers in the similar mindset, I think, to, to what you guys are looking for and, and trying to share that story. And they do reach out, but it's not 12 a week. It's maybe 12 a year. And, and we slowly but surely are, are trying to grow the portfolio because we actually have two businesses now ourselves. We've got Rosso, the roasting brand, and then we've got an importing brand called Forward. And that brand is, I, th I think in a lot of ways, trying to do the same thing that Juice is trying to do and, and bring in coffees that don't fit the, the normal criteria of what people envision coffee is. And they're falling into a category of, uh, you know, experimental, biodynamic, organic, whatever labels you want to slap onto it that we believe in and don't believe in at the same time. But, you know, that that sort of mindset and, and trying to, to push forward something new and, and different in the marketplace. I've got a question on the importing side. How many how many countries are you guys involved with at the moment? That's maybe a tough question to at least a dozen. OK. And how does, how does the importing of wine work? You mentioned pallets. So we're going at a pallet and that's going on a plane or are we going by sea or is it a case going by, by case? sea? Yeah. So essentially in Alberta, it works a little bit differently. Uh, every province, every country is different from an importing perspective. Essentially what we do is we reach out to the producer. Uh, we place an order with that producer. They put everything on a pallet and then we reach out to one of the shipping companies that we work with. And they're often a, a shipping company that specializes in wine transportation, whether that be in refrigeration or whether that be in, you know, like wrapping the pallets in, in heat proof wrap, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're good at the logistics side of things. So they essentially coordinate shipping from the winery all the way to uh, Alberta's wine warehouse, which is up in St. Albert called Liquor Connect. It's apparently one wow. of the largest warehouses on the planet. It's like, I'm pretty sure it's all like robots that, you know, take care of this thing. Like imagine Wally, but his whole job is just like stacking wine. This is what I've heard. I haven't visited it. I don't know if you can even go there, but this is where every single bottle of wine in Alberta is stored. Our entire inventory is there and we've never seen it. And we will never see it, essentially. And it's stored there with every other importer who does the same thing that we do. Then what happens is all that gets put into like sort of a, a universal inventory. So Liquor Connect has their own website. Every single bottle in the province is, is listed on there. And then wine shops and restaurants, anybody with that particular class of license, can order from them. So they can order five cases from us and three cases from somebody else and 20 cases from somebody else. It all gets assembled onto the same pallet uh, and then they ship it out to that wine shop. So, you know, again, use vine arts as an example. They order on Wednesday, they pay on Thursday, they get their wine on Friday. And this is all the way down from, from St. Albert. Because they're buying from multiple importers simultaneously, all that money that they pay for it goes directly to the AGLC, so the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Commission, and now also cannabis. I don't know where they put that letter in there, but uh, it's in there somewhere. All the money gets paid directly to them, 
they take out their cut, which is a lot. You know, if you think about a $30 bottle of wine, $5 of that goes directly to the government, essentially. Believe me, we're making less than $5 on it. So they're actually making more money than we are on the wines that we import, which is infuriating. But also I understand how, you know, this is how we get roads, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. That's a good so, answer. Yeah, yeah. So they, they get paid and then they pay us the following week for whatever we sold that week. So that's essentially how it works from a logistics perspective. Again, Mark is the logistics guy, so I guess I should be letting you answer this question. But yeah, from a logistics perspective, they've taken care of a lot of the, the backend stuff, which is really great. I think for a small agency like us, it's set up beautifully. I think for the really big agencies, like the guys who are importing like Captain Morgans and like selling you know, containers worth of it every year, I bet they would love to do their own logistics because they could save so much money. There aren't really discounts for like volume. Yeah, exactly. Versus if they own their own warehouse, if they own their own trucking company, they could do it and they would save so much money. Those products would be way cheaper. But for us, we're, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, to work by myself for two and a half years if it wasn't for this system. And so it's really, you know, again, quite easy compared to other other provinces, I would say. I don't know if you have anything to no, not really. I mean, uh, we definitely have our differences with them every once in a while. But yeah, generally, when you look at some of the, the systems in the other provinces, it's a pretty good system. There aren't too many issues. Very low risk, I mean, or, or almost no risk, frankly, of not getting paid. Because the only way that the, the licensees get their liquor is if they pay the AJLC. So the money's there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still sort of funny in my mind that we're regulated uh, provincially. I can understand why the logistics would be dealt with, you know, provincially, um, but I don't understand why the rules aren't federal. I mean, you go to you talk to anyone in Austria or France and they're just like, what? Like you, the laws aren't the same across the entire. I'm like, well, it's a big country, first of all, but the rules are still pretty screwy. But Alberta definitely, as Eric pointed out, for a small agency like us, it's just easier to let them do everything. <laughs> and then your role really becomes bringing the wine to Alberta and then promoting the wine yeah. And, and then the rest is the, the business transaction is done all through this platform. Yeah. The delivery to the door, everything is done through totally. this platform. Yeah. It means that like our job is curation, which is great. Again, there still is a ton of logistics that Mark has to deal with on the back end, but it means that, you know, now that I have even one other person, it means that I can be focused entirely on the creative side of the business. So that is writing about the wineries, writing about each individual wine. 500 wines. <laughs> we have to write tasting notes on 500 wines a year, which is exhausting. I know everybody's like, that sounds like a dream, but I don't know if you've ever tried to, you know, taste a hundred wines in a day before your mouth will be on fire. Your brain will be completely dead. You know, it's, it's, it's taxing. And so, you know, a lot of things like that doing staff education is a major part of the job. It's one of my favorite parts of the job too, is going into a restaurant that carries our wine and sharing these stories about each individual producer Again, I told you the coffee affects me like way harder than mine does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so talking about each individual producer with whoever is carrying them, that ends up being a massive part of the job. And then, like we were saying, what sets us apart is we like doing pop-ups and unique tastings and more customer-focused things that literally don't make us money. So we don't make money off of tastings. We can't make money off of anything to do with selling wine other than selling wine to stores. So every event that we've ever done for consumers, it's literally just covering the cost of the wine and we make none of that money. 
it's all stuff that we do just because we think it's important and that people will drink more of our wine if they know how our wines are different from conventional wines. And if they have somebody there to to sort of walk them through it, it's, I'm, I'm sure you have the exact same thing, but if somebody their entire life only drank like Tim Horton's double doubles, and then you pour them like the most amazing, you know, single origin, like beautifully roasted, like the, your, your end all be all of coffee. And they're like, this isn't what I know. And therefore it's bad. We have to do a lot of that where it's like, cool, you've grown up drinking really manufactured, sweet, high alcohol, red wines. And now I'm pouring you something that's not that. And your first reaction is this is different. Therefore it's bad we have to do a lot of like mitigation there where we're like, okay, so like it's okay for the flavors to be different. That's what's exciting about this is that it is like a totally unique flavor. It is something that's, that's, you know, out there. And so a lot of our job is that it's, 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 you know, dealing directly with consumers, helping pull back the veil on the wine industry, which this is very useful for. (laughs) I don't know. That ends up being like the major part of the job for sure. Obviously sales, but again, our version of sales is, is, just sitting down with somebody with, yeah, it's sitting down with six bottles of wine in front of somebody and just telling them about the wine and then whether or not they want to order it, that's totally up to them. We're not going to be like, we'll give you a dollar off if you order this right now or like, you know, or like how many cases are you taking? Like, are you taking five cases? I bet you could take six cases. I bet you could sell six cases. We don't even ask those questions. Like, you know, it's just before the wines, if they like them, they're going to order them. They know what they like. They know what they can sell. We're just there to give them the information you're an education platform. Yeah, essentially like that, that's, that would be the goal. A hundred percent is that's, that's the part that I'm most passionate about. And the part that I'm best at, <laughs> I'm not good at the other parts. I, you know, at least in my opinion, what is the general stereotype of wine when you hit, you know, somebody that, that doesn't know, and they're, they're used to sweet and, and red and whatever you just classified there. What is that stereotype? What is conventional wine to the masses? Yeah. I, I'd say that there's like maybe like, two different things. One white wine, 90% of like the mass produced white wine is just going for neutrality. It's the same reason why vodka is really popular is because it doesn't taste like anything. And that's their goal is like how crisp, how clean, how pure can we make this taste? So it's, you see that with like, you know, Santa Margarita Pinot Grigio is like the ultimate example. I think it's probably still the number one selling wine in Alberta, but it tastes like nothing is completely flavorless. And, and that's the goal is like, it's, it's thirst quenching. It's like, you know, drinking a, a vodka soda. Like you're not drinking it because you love the flavor of vodka sodas. You're like, I would like to get a little bit inebriated, uh, you know, mind my calories and, uh, <laughs> you know, have something that's not going to stain my, my white shirt at the club. You know, like you, you have a specific like set of goals. Do not Speaking edit that sense. out. Speaking uh, of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but there's a certain, like, I think there's like a goal there as much as anything else. And then on the red wine side, it's, I'm sure you, you experience this in the exact same way is people, I, I can't remember what the saying is people talk dry and buy sweet, something along those lines of like, they're like, Oh, I'm looking for a dry red wine. Like, yeah, like a really dry red wine. And then you pour them multiple options and they choose the sweetest one every time. And so this is like the mass produced red wine world is like wines that are give the illusion of dryness while also having a lot of sweetness, like apothic. Again, we're talking about 15 grams per liter of sugar versus all of our red wines are below a gram per liter of sugar. You know, those are the things that we're competing against is like neutral tasting white wines and sweet tasting red wines. What are some of the like dark side of wine? Cause that's, that's maybe one oh, of them. That- there's so much dark side of wine. 
like we're talking dyes you you mentioned i don't know yeah my yeah that's one of my favorites is like the coloring process apothic is a great example because it's like produced like coca-cola essentially yeah i actually got to go to where they make apothic before actually like right at the start when we started juice i got invited on like a government-sponsored like wine trip essentially for like wine buyers across canada so it was like a couple people from alberta a couple people from quebec toronto vancouver whatever and we all got taken down to California and got to go to a bunch of wineries. But again, like it's the big guys that are paying into whatever this, you know, California wine development agency is. And so you got to go to some really amazing small producers, but we also had to go to some of the big guys. And so we went to the place where they make some of Apothic because it's not even all made in the same place because it's just, it's so big. It looked like a space station. Like it was unbelievable to see just like the sheer size Impressive. And so we were talking to you, you know, one of their their managing group or whoever was in charge of leading us around this labyrinth of, of machines and tanks. They were talking about, you know, we're really p- proud of what we've been able to do with Apothic. It's the number one selling red wine in North America at the moment. Do you want to know how we developed it? I was like, I'd be super curious. Yeah, like, let us know. Because this, this side of the business is also interesting to me. Is maybe not what we do, but I find it really again, fascinating at the very least. Morbidly fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, we just basically modeled ourselves after the number one selling beverage of all time, which is Coca-Cola. We looked at at their history, at the way that they market themselves, at even the flavor profile, so the ratio of acidity to sweetness, innovations that they had made in order to be able to lower cost but keep the flavor the same, all these sort of things. And one of my favorite examples of of this is when they're developing it, they poured it for, you know, thousands and thousands of people and they would pour it in three different colors. They're like, this is the exact same wine, but one's light, one's, you know, sort of moderate colored and one's dark. Not telling people that the wines are the exact same wine. They've just, you know, changed the color of it. And almost unanimously, people thought that the darker one was the best one. And so they're like, cool, we can make wine darker. That's very easy to do. And so now a lot of the wine in the world is colored to be darker because people see dark wine and they're like, it's more flavorful. It's more rich. It's more prestigious. That sounds like something we know. <laughs> dark, dark. Yeah, coffee. actually, I yeah, guess that would for be sure. a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, we're, we're, co- we're constantly battling that when we pour somebody a wine and it's, you know, none of our wines are colored. And so they look very light in some cases and people are like oh no I, I don't really like light wines or they'll taste it and be like oh this is so thin like it's not though this is full-on 10 out of 10 flavor this is as much flavor as you can cram into a beverage it's just not the color you're expecting and i get it we do very much eat with our eyes but at the same time i don't know there's just such a beautiful spectrum of colors that wines can be and it's it's tragic that we've sort of fallen into this thing same thing that happened with whiskey though you know, so many whiskeys are colored because young whiskey is obviously very light in color. People think dark, sweeter, richer, more molassesy, maybe. And so they've just done the same thing in the wine world. It's it's ingenious, but it's also infuriating than battling those sort of preconceived notions over what a wine is supposed to look like. Same thing with haziness. You know, almost all of our wines are hazy to a greater or lesser degree. Some of them more so than others. Some of them are you know, full on turbid. Some of them are, you know, maybe just a little bit of a haziness. You know, some people freak out. They're, they're like, oh man, they didn't even finish making this wine. Like, well, why would somebody filter? Like, what is the reason for filtering? You think these people don't know how to filter wine? You think they like missed a step? They made a mistake? No, they like it like this. That's the, that's the thing. It's like, this was the goal to not remove those flavors and textures from the wine. So 
Yeah, the apothic thing, I just always found super fascinating because that is just uh, a full on 180 from, again, sort of the idea and philosophy of wine and terroir and everything to literally making a manual. I mean, I know a lot of wines are already, you know, we're already being sort of manufactured to a certain extent, but I guess because to me, wine has always been like the winemaker wants the wine to taste like this or or sorry, wants to translate, you know, the terroir and, and have the wine come out like this. And it's up to consumers to decide whether they like it or not. And the apothic approach was the complete opposite. It was like, no, we're going to find out what consumers want and make wine taste like that. And I'm like, again, it completely depends on your philosophy of wine as a, you know, a beverage or a product versus a, a sort of a translation of, of time and place and whatnot. And, and I'll admit, like, I've been caught kind of, you know, I'm trying to think of like tea would be a good example where I didn't really know you know, all of the history behind tea and all these sorts of things. And, and it, even coffee to a certain extent, I think you get this too, probably where it's like people will delve really heavily into coffee or heavily into wine, but then drink like Tim Hortons and Starbucks and be like, but coffee doesn't matter. So, you know, for me to sit here and say that, you know, wine should be something more spiritual or more of this or that, like I'm sure people roll their eyes, but then, you know, might have the same philosophy about something else. Yeah. Um, so, you know, once you've kind of gone down that path with one thing, it's, it's hard not to kind of translate into other things. But that that was just what got me about about something like Apothic or really heavily manufactured wines was this switch from from sort of what my belief about what wine is supposed to be to this idea that it's like no we're making a product that tastes like people i think i always say it's like cheese whiz is to cheese it's like <laughs> there's about as much uh, cheese in cheese whiz as there is wine in apothic but you know i'm trying to think of like tea would be a good example where i didn't really know you know all yeah. of the history behind it. and i think this is an important thing to say too is that we're not saying that apothic tastes bad because it definitely does not it has been designed to taste good. It tastes like red velvet cupcake. It's yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's the equivalent of like Twinkies or like McDonald's hamburgers. They are designed to be delicious. And anybody who denies that those things are delicious is lying to themselves. And it's the same thing with these. I'm like, these are delicious, but they don't achieve the other goals that I have when I drink a bottle of wine, which is again, some sort of aesthetic value where I'm trying to get something unique out of each bottle of wine. A $30 bottle of wine is going to cost $30 whether you get anything out of it or not, whether you just chug the bottle or whether you sit there all night with it and, and discover all these things about a region, about a certain year. You're like, oh, this you know, bottle of, of Pinot Gris from Alsace from 2003 is like 15% alcohol and a little bit sweet because it was super hot that year. And that's something you can taste in the wine. You're transported there. You're learning something about a place and you can imagine what it was like for those vineyard workers working in like 45 degree heat that year, what the challenges at the winery were, the conversations that people were having back then and, you know, about things like climate change and how that's so different from what it is now. And like, that still only costs $30. So whether you're just crushing the bottle of wine or whether you're getting some sort of, you know, bigger thing out of it, it's going to cost you the same amount. So for, for us, it's really nice to get that extra little bit of value out of the bottle of wine via learning about it, via mindful consumption. I'm sure you've experienced this as well, too. If somebody just like crushes a coffee out of a, like out of a cup with a lid on it or whatever, like they're maybe not getting the full experience, but you know, they're paying the same amount as the person who did sit there and, and, you know, really think about it, what it was that was in the cup that they were tasting. So again, it's not to downplay any of these manufactured products is what I'm trying to say. They, they're achieving their goal successfully 
and people like it. And that's great. It's a success story. It's just not the success story you want to talk about and, and totally. And, and it's a success story that has a lot of negative consequences on the environment, on frankly, potentially people's health. We don't necessarily know, but, uh, I don't imagine they're particularly good for you. I mean, not that <laughs> wine is necessarily good for you in general, but yeah. I like to believe it has curative properties, but it's <laughs> probably a placebo effect. But. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say coffee has so many analogies. How do, do you want to bridge the gap? How do we bring in coffee? Yeah, I mean, my, mindful consumption is is something... I'm, of course, aware of in, in the coffee world. And, and you know, when we, we take coffees like these, I think people can't see us, but we're drinking two different coffees. One's a little bit more linear and approachable, maybe more classic in, in flavor expression, the, the shorter cup there. And the taller cup is a little bit more out there, loud, eccentric, not your average cup of coffee. So good, though. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and like really interesting coffee. And I, I often joke that a coffee like that is the type of thing that that I want to sit by myself and sit in the corner and like look into the corner of the wall and like just be there with my thoughts and the coffee and and really you know unpack it and and peel back the layers and temperature I know temperature is huge in wine you want to consume it at certain temperature thresholds or windows for for certain types of wine coffee you know we're, we're talking about the bad rap that you get in wine one thing in coffee is we, we mentioned dark roast but also there can be great dark roast before I proceed but but temperature temperature is a huge thing people people want their coffee so bloody hot yeah and temperature masks flavor right and and that's why corporate beer companies want you to drink it as as incredibly cold as you can Coors Light with the like the minus one or whatever on the (laughs) The, yeah the the can changes color and like Drink, drink it as cold as you can. If you drink can it taste as this, it is not can. cold enough. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can taste this, you're not going to enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> right? For sure. And, and so with, with coffee, it's like, you want to try it hot, you want to try it warm, you want to try it cool. And as that temperature progresses, you should have an, an expression of flavors that also progress. In my experience, it should get sweeter. If it's a bad coffee, if it's over-roasted or, or under-roasted, it, it will probably fall into a world of bitterness and the colder it gets, actually, the more shrieking that bitterness will will yeah. become. So, uh, you know, fascinating hearing the, the way you unpack a lot of that stuff. You know, someone's listening. They don't know much about wine. What is a tip or a trick that they could use the next time they're having a glass of wine? Either ordering it or consuming it to impress their friends or to enjoy it themselves to enjoy it themselves or to impress their friends. Yeah. I'd say rely on the experts is like the number one thing is you can't really go into think of whatever a big box liquor store is or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Superstore liquor. You can't walk in there and ask one of the staff, like, what do you have for natural wines right now? And get sort of, you know, in answer, because there are no, there's nothing on the label that would indicate that something would be natural versus unnatural. And so unless you've tasted 500, 600, whatever, however many bottles are in that store, you know, you're not really getting that information. So for me, it's going to restaurants with staff that have wine training, that have maybe a sommelier on the floor or that have, you know, a wine director who is, you know, consciously curating that list. And then same thing with wine stores, like shop at the boutique wine stores, go in, chat their staff's ears off. They love it. They would be happy to tell you everything about as many of the bottles as they, as they can. And so I think that's the number one thing. It's, it's the same thing as 
you know, like if you were to go into Tim Hortons, you're like, okay, what's the best coffee here? <laughs> You've started in the wrong place. I think that that's one of the major things. It's like, yeah, go to a wine shop that is curating, that the staff are knowledgeable, and then you're immediately going to get a step up in quality, especially price to quality ratio. I'd say that one of the big things for us is is definitely hitting a certain price threshold where if you think about wine that's under $25 retail price, somebody somewhere along the way is getting screwed and it's usually the farmer. Somebody's getting underpaid to make that wine and it's it's shipping company is taking what they're taking, the wine store is taking what they're taking, the importer is going to take a markup on it. And so like I think that the the ideal you know, the, the best price to quality ratio of getting like as much deliciousness, as much uniqueness, as compelling as wine can possibly get, while also contributing to good wages for farmers and for winemakers is really in like the 30 to $40 range. That is the best place that you can spend your money in the wine world from a retail perspective. So that's... And that's Canadian dollars. So in US, 25 to 32. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's such a sweet spot where if you're happy drinking a bottle or two a week, you know, that's sort of like, again, it's, it's achievable for a lot of people to sort of maybe drink a little bit less, but up the quality. I think that that's a major factor for sure. If you're looking for value, there are certain regions in the world that do produce really great value wines, you know, whether that be Spain or Portugal uh, as really great options. But then you look at places like Argentina and Chile if you're getting wines that are really good value, again, it's questionable about whether or not their employees are, are getting the payment they deserve for such highly skilled labor. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd say that those are sort of some of my tips. I don't know if you have a... Well, I'm just thinking more from the, you know, once you have that bottle of wine, yeah. mm, from totally. more of like a tasting perspective or, or, you know, when you open this up for your friends. I think the number one thing that changed the, the world of wine for me was sort of like conscious drinking which for me was was making the switch from literally just having something in my glass and sipping away on it as i i talked and and you know thinking about it every time i took a sip like sort of like processing in my head and i know not everyone wants to you know sit there and focus in on the wine when they're supposed to be having fun with their friends so i'm not saying like every time you have a bottle of wine you have to you know be writing down notes and you have to be doing that but it, it almost becomes like if you do it enough times, it almost becomes second nature. Like it, it, I do it now without even thinking about it. I mean, I still like to write some tasting notes and do that sort of thing. But I think it's it's making that switch from whatever's in your glass, you're going to drink it to to sort of consciously thinking like, do I like this? Why do I like it? Like, what are the structures here? And you know, you don't even have to have any wine knowledge to know that like, A, I like this or I don't like this, but also like, you know, is this wine like sweet and smooth or, you know, does it have that like sort of more like tannic bite to it? Is it good food wine? Is it better on its own? And then, you know, both, both Eric and I have done some uh, wine education, this uh, W set, you know, Wine Spirits Education Trust, they use what they call a systematic approach to tasting. And I, I remember when I first started, you know, wine tasting and writing notes, I was totally against this because I thought the whole idea was you just like took a sip and just like whatever you thought it tasted like you wrote down. And I was like, the power of suggestion. If someone gives me a list of things that it tastes like, then of course I'm going to think that that's what it tastes like. But as it turns out, this actually really worked for my, you know, engineer analytical brain was having this chart that basically you know, you go through and it's kind of, you start out, does it taste like red fruit? Does it taste like, you know, dark fruit? Does it have oak characteristics? Does it have this? You start it very simply and then you move along the line. It's like, okay, red fruit. Now what kind of red fruit? Is it strawberry? Is it cherry? And then 
And then as you get, you know, Eric's done his diploma, which is like the high end thing. And at that point, it's kind of like, okay, but it's like a cherry. But what kind of cherry is it? And is it like a fresh cherry or an underripe cherry or is it that? And it's, it's not so much about like getting it right. There's no right or wrong. And I think I get this a lot when I taste with friends who, you know, are not really in wine. They're like, oh, like I'm, I'm afraid to tell you what I think because I'm going to be wrong. And I'm like, you taste it. I can't tell you what you taste. Like it might be weird if you have like apothic and it tastes like pineapples, but I, I don't know, like, or like, you know, a big red wine tastes like pineapples. But if that's what you taste, that's what you taste. All it is, is a way to describe the wine in a way that, you know, will hopefully give people a sense. And yeah, there's a lot of funny tasting notes out there, but I, I, I really lean heavily on, on the idea that aromas are the strongest sense connected with your memories. And, uh, and I, I have a lot of senses when I taste the wine and I always use the same example, but it, it's so poignant for me is, is, you know, like wet leaves on a fall day. And then people are like, oh, so like, it's like you're stuffing leaves into your mouth. It's like, no, it, it's reminiscent of, you know, sort of that like damp earthy character you get from walking through a park on a, on a fall day when it's rained a little bit and the leaves are falling off the trees and this, and it evoked a certain memory at a certain time in my life. And that's like gives you this crazy emotional connection with this beverage that you're having. I mean, this is, I guess I'm going off on a tangent here, but I'm just like, these, no, it's are, great. these are the reasons, these are the things that I like to think about when I have wine. And I know people are like, I'm just having a wine with my dinner. Like I don't, but this is where you start to build that emotional connection and, and that understanding of like, this is why I'm excited about this. This is, this is what makes me happy. And yeah, for me, it's that like evocation of, of like memory and that time and place. I mean, we're talking about a beverage, uh, you know, not to over over talk about its importance, but we're talking about like what are the only perishable items that humans can create that can last for 200 years? Not not all wines, but there are certain, you know, sweet wines uh, that have been found that are like 150 years old or, or even older and people will crack the barrel. And I mean, it probably doesn't stay good for very long, but it's something you can still drink. Like think of another perishable item in human history that lasts that long, you know, and, and so to me, that is special. That is something. Uh, I mean, again, not to keep bashing apothic, but I'm like, that's probably not going to last 200 years. <laughs> yeah, you're in a it's really just like an easy. It's just like such an easy, <laughs> easy target. target. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, that's that's what it is for me. Is is it was really just that honestly that switch from like drinking what's ever in my glass to like thinking about it every time I took a sip. We talk a lot about the idea too that you know if if you're to go to a concert or the ballet or you're, you're going to an art gallery and you and you see or hear something that is particularly profound you allow yourself to have an emotional reaction to it you allow yourself to tear up or smile or whatever it is and i feel like people don't allow themselves to have that same sort of emotional connection with the things that we eat and drink despite those senses being way more closely tied to sort of like our emotional centers you know, as Mark was saying, to, to memory in particular, I think a lot of this is just because of the pretentiousness that's associated with wine, which is people can do whatever they want in whatever sphere, but our, our world is not pretentious. Our world is hanging out with farmers and, you know, getting drunk on delicious grape juice, essentially. So it's, we, we allow ourselves to have those emotional connections, to be moved by wines that are from an important time, or even just something about the flavors in some cases just they make you feel weird and it's like if you allow yourself to be moved by them it, it can be a very powerful experience and again this is the thing is like that bottle of wine is going to cost the same amount i know i said it before but it's 
whether or not you're you're being brought to this sort of epiphany or you're just crushing a bottle, it's still going to cost the same amount. So it, it's it's nice to at least have yourself open to the to the idea that you can be moved emotionally by you know art that you drink as much as art that you look at or listen to. So I think that's important for people, and I think that's across the board too. Like I've had teas that have been just completely astonishing to me, where it's just you know your heart starts beating fast, and you're like, what is going on here? Same thing with coffee too, and same thing with sake, and same same thing with you know, different foods that I've had at, at different restaurants in the world, like a really good oyster or something like that. Like it can have this thing where it just, you know, it's indescribable. Yeah. yeah it's indescribable. Yeah. Yeah. Very accurate. Yeah. The, the experience of consumption is far more than just taste, right? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's environment, it's full sensory awareness and all the way down to tactile visual, you, yeah. you name it. I, I think wine is so fascinating. I love, you know, the different labels you, you walk into a, a wine shop and it's, I'm shopping with my eyes because a lot of the times I have no idea what, what it means on the label or, or there's little to no information on the label to actually decipher what the experience is going to be in the bottle. But I look at labels and I think to myself, that's cute. I think I'll like that one. You know, <laughs> yeah. This one's fun and playful. That aligns with me. And, yeah. and that's where the experience begins. And then I start to pull out of my fridge, you know, where am I going? Who am I going to, to drink this bottle with? Am I going to drink it with Dave? Dave, you know, has a similar appreciation that I do. I'll bring this fun, playful bottle. Am I going to drink it with my mom, not to throw her under the bus, who, you know, likes her food too hot or too cold and doesn't really like flavor experience and, and doesn't understand it? Maybe I'll <laughs> bring that, that a, a little bit more on the apothic. She loves Rodney Strong. That's her, her number one, you know, her favorite wine. You know, so there's there's time, place, experience, and curation that I think goes into the whole package of wine, and that's something I love. That I personally, I think coffee misses. Coffee is very bags all look the same. Uh, the, the the marketing and the brand awareness surrounding companies is very similar. A lot a lot of things in coffee are are copy and paste. I think across the board, menu the composition of menus is similar. Take, take your favorite roasters. They have an Ethiopian coffee. They have a Colombian coffee. They have a Brazilian coffee. Insert a Central American coffee and maybe one other African coffee. And like, yeah. that's the menu composition. You know, juice, I love that you guys have South Africa, Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, Georgian wines. I believe there's a... Not, not yet, but we've talked about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Times. This We're, month there was Quebec. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I finished that one last night. Oh, good for nice. you. I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> it just it changes the experience by seeing a different country on the label, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it removes some of the the pretenses around it as well too, because there are certain wine experiences, like when you when you're opening a bottle of Bordeaux or you're opening a bottle of Champagne or you're opening a bottle of Burgundy, there's expectations associated with those things. Versus if you're opening a bottle of wine from the Czech Republic, you can kind of allow your guard down a little bit. You know, there's this really strong correlation between the amount of money that you spend on a bottle of wine and the amount of enjoyment you get out of it. The more you spend on a bottle of wine, the more you're going to like it, according to, you know, the science at the very least. So it's it's cool having wines from places that don't get these big price points. You know, a bottle of Burgundy these days for like a really good bottle of Burgundy, you're looking at 150 bucks versus you can get a wine that I think is of, you know, equivalent quality in a lot of ways from Austria for like $60 or $40 even. When you put everything else aside, having some of these wines from other regions can be really important for realigning your price to quality ratio 
sort of where you place value? Is it on flavor or is it on the experience of drinking something that's rare, essentially? So it's or, or prestigious or it has a certain you know title, a, a luxury status. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's I find that really interesting as well. And it's the same thing for coffee. I find myself getting into the same you know, there's certain places that I like to drink coffee from, frankly, and I have a hard time getting out of them, uh, sometimes because of previous experience, but it's the same reason that I hate when people are like, oh, I had a natural wine one time five years ago. I don't like natural wines. It's like if I were to say like, yeah, cool, I had like one bad coffee from Mexico. And so I think all coffee from Mexico tastes that way. Like that's just really, I hate it. I hate when people do stuff like that. You know, so many people are like, oh, I don't like wine from California. California has every climate that can exist on planet Earth all in one place. They grow every grape variety. Some of them are wild fermented. Some of them are inoculated. There's no there's no physical way that you could possibly dislike all wines from California. Even you couldn't even dislike most of them physically impossible and then like them from another country. It is chemically impossible for that to, to for there to be enough difference for that to exist. I think having wines from other places it's a hard sell, frankly. When we first brought in wines in the Czech Republic, I think the first three years we lost money on them. And then this year is the first year that people have been like excited enough to try wine from a, from a new place. Same thing with like Slovakia. Like we brought in some wines from Slovakia and people are like, they make wine? Like, yeah. If it's a country, they make wine essentially is like the way that it goes these days. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels there where you can get really good value from some of maybe these other countries that they can't sell their wines to the same prices essentially. And again, I can only assume that it's the same thing in the coffee industry as well. Well, it's funny you say, uh, uh, I guess studies have shown, like you said, like sort of, uh, innately, whether we know it or not, like we like wines that are more expensive simply because we spent more money on them. But it, I'm almost going the opposite direction now where my expectations are so high when I spend, you know, if I spend $150 on a bottle of Burgundy, I expect it to be a certain level. And I would say more often than not, I've been let down. Uh, whereas the number of $30, you know, $30 wines I've had that just completely blew my mind. I almost get more joy out of that expectation. Whereas, you know, obviously I get a lot of joy out of a really nice bottle of Burgundy that I spent a bunch of money on, but it's like, yeah, it should be because I spent all this money on it. It better taste, taste good. Not that I expect a $30 bottle of wine to taste bad, but when it provides this like mind blowing experience that just gets amped up by the fact that, you know, this was 30 bucks and frankly tastes easily as good or brings me as much joy because whether it tastes good or not is a, is a subjective thing. Does it bring me, you know, a certain amount of joy? I'm like easily worth a hundred bucks, you know, like it's. So it's been five years. What's a piece of advice you would give to each other five years ago, starting out juice imports? I think for me, <laughs> I don't know if I want to troll Eric on a podcast. <laughs> you should for sure. I kind of deserve it. I troll Mark a lot, like a lot, a lot. I definitely deserve infinitely more trolling than, than I get. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, I think for me, it would just be, you know, unfortunately I wasn't in a very good place with my other work at the time. And I was just kind of like head down on that kind of just threw Eric to the wolves a little bit. I mean, the fact is like he, he had all the experience as far as the wine world goes and I had never started a business before. So I can't say that like I had all this business wisdom to impart to him, but I definitely should have done a better job of like, Hey, here's, here's like our budget. Here's 
spreadsheets. We always make jokes about it. I, I'm uh, infamous for making tons and tons of spreadsheets, but I mean, it's partly my background. They're also just really handy. Um, <laughs> I just like my whole background was budgets and finances and managing projects, managing expectations, managing all these things. I really did nothing to like impart sort of any wisdom I had, partially because I was like, didn't really see that I had any wisdom to impart. Now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, that probably would have been really helpful. I've also, you know, I'm 10 years older than Eric. I'd been in the work world for a lot longer, you know, and, and came from a totally different background. So I, I probably had a lot of stuff that I probably could have helped them out with and I just didn't. And it only kind of became apparent after like a year, we were like, oh crap, well, we need to, we need to rethink that you know, how we do those things. We, we definitely ran out of money the first year where I was just, I got too gung-ho. It was like just the opportunity to like buy all these new wines that have never been available in Alberta before. And the world was my oyster. And then I brought on too many producers too quickly. If I, if I had some classic supply and demand, yeah. If I had some spreadsheets, uh, (laughs) which I now, you know, again, I can definitely say that since Mark has joined the company, we definitely have at least 300% increase in our spreadsheet production. Uh, those are the numbers you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, Percentages. And yeah, yeah. we also have a car now that was, uh, I like to joke. That's really the only reason I got to join the business. Totally. Yeah. Mark got hired because of the fact that he owned a vehicle and had a driver's license. (laughs) Uh, it, It is very helpful. Yeah, piece of advice. I'd say we should have hired you earlier. I think you should have been more pushy about being like, hey, I want to be in this industry. I can be useful. I can pay for myself. I will sell enough wine to therefore cover my salary. I think if you were pushier earlier, I think we could have hired you earlier, which is an interesting thing because like, Again, who knows that that's true because obviously I wasn't good at the budget, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel that way. And I think it would have been helpful to me because again, like everybody experiences burnout to a greater or lesser degree. And it was like, I did my uh, WSET diploma, was working full-time at Vine Arts and started the company without ever having started a company, without ever having run a company before. I did all of that simultaneously over the course of six months and then worked by myself selling wine to Edmonton, Calgary, and Lethbridge without a car for two and a half years. And like, not only that, but it's like, I knew we'd, we, I was bad at the budget. So it's like, I would literally sleep on the couch in the back of my friend's restaurant in Edmonton. He gave me like the door code for their restaurant. And instead of like paying for a hotel, I would literally sleep on like the couch in the back of his, his restaurant. In That's order to, startup like, culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. To like save money. And I would walk like, yeah, like 20 K with like six bottles of wine in my backpack in the middle of winter in order to like save us the $15 Uber ride. So yeah, I think that if Mark was looking at the budget, he would have been like, that is incredibly unnecessary. And not only that, but would have been able to help me. So I feel like it would have undone some of the startup culture trauma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, yeah, assert, assert yourself yeah, more definitely, uh, or at least yourself three years ago. I feel like you're pretty good right now at saying that uh, when I have dumb ideas, you're like, yeah, like, no, <laughs> we're going to immediately put that one on the back burner. Well, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely changed as I've, you know, cause even though I was part of the business from the beginning, I mean, it was basically Eric's baby, like, you know, for the longest time. So when I came on, I was like, I feel like the number of questions, like Eric would just be like, just do it. Stop asking questions. Like you're, this is as much your business as it is mine. But I was just like, Ah, uh, but like, I just want to make sure that like, I don't know that I'm not, I'm not like stepping on anybody's toes. He's just like, man, like just do your thing. I don't want to have to answer you every time. 
Okay, we got we got to close this out. Yeah. So let's yeah. go personal a little bit. Okay, for each of you, what does rest look like? Um, you know, honestly, uh, like I don't know if you mean like sort of in terms of business and work life balance and that sort of thing. You know, we we do a lot of work from home. We finally do have a little office space, which for me has been sort of a blessing. But uh, you know, people are like, "Oh, but you answer emails at like nine o'clock or ten o'clock." It's you know, don't you feel like you can never get away from it and all of this? And and honestly, like I don't want to. Like, and and it's not it's not in a workaholic sense. I'm not, I don't think I'm you know giving up other parts of my life. I mean, frankly, again, like not that this isn't a tough job and there's lots of work involved, but. I love it. You know, like I, I love what I do. I'm excited when we have get emails or we're putting together POs for producers and yeah, there's some stressful moments, but part of the reason I made the switch was so that I could make my own hours and, you know, get up at 10 o'clock if I want to in the morning <laughs> and, and work from home in my, you know, PJs and, and watch sports and answer emails. And so I'm not someone that needs like a beach vacation. I, you know, I, I'm happy at home watching sports with a bottle of wine, you know, Eric and I live like a block from each other. So you know, even during the lockdown, we were basically like cohorts simply because like, who else are we going to hang out with? And so we just drank really good wine and like Eric's an amazing cook. So we would just tip to people out there. If you're going to get a business partner, um, a business partner who will sleep on couches in the back of restaurants to save your company money and is also a stellar cook. Those are like, don't worry about the other parts of the business. You can figure that out. Those are, those are two, uh, two high quality characters. Writing those but, notes down now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's like, for me, it's, it's funny. It's not, it's not some big thing that I, I do a lot of puzzles nice. I discovered, which, nice. which sounds super nerdy, but it's, I, it's like one of the only things I can do to like, sort of like zone out. And I just kind of like get a glass of wine and have sports on the TV. And I don't know, that's, that's restful for me. I mean, going on vacation is awesome, but mostly on vacation, we just like eat and drink our faces off. So it's like restful in a way, but also not so much for our bodies. (laughs) I'm sort of, I was that way for a long time where it's, I, I love the work so much that I didn't need time away, but then I definitely experienced burnout really hard right before the pandemic. So in all honesty, for my like mental health to a degree, you know, now that it's been going on for know, hundred years, it's, it's, it's now all of a sudden a negative thing for my mental health. But the fact that I, I couldn't work as much as I did was really, really helpful. And so I'm definitely discovering a new relationship with rest and time away from work. Unlike Mark, who is very good at like compartmentalizing, you know, like when he answers an email, it then doesn't affect like the rest of his night or like, he's like, oh, I can do that later or whatever. I am very bad at that. I need to set aside time where I have no access to my phone. I have no access to doing work of any type. And so for me, a lot of that over the last year has been like backcountry camping, going away for like 10 days where it's, I literally don't have a signal and I'm just hiking. I find that really sort of like restorative for my mind and then spending a ton of time. I'm a homebody. I don't really, you know, I don't need to hang out with people most of the time. So I just literally hang out by myself, read a book, you know, reading and, and especially reading poetry is just like something that I focus on. That's like, if I can do that over the course of a day, I just feel infinitely better for the rest of the day. And then the gym is like, the gym is the one place where an hour to two hours a day, it's like zoned out just in a spot where I'm doing something that's constructive. Everything else in your life, I feel like it's hard to measure your success. Success is, is so kind of all over the place versus if you're lifting a heavier weight than you did the week before, you've made an improvement. So I find it very helpful because, you know, even if I can't figure out if, if other things in my life are getting better or getting worse, I at least know that I can 
do more reps or do whatever, lift more weight. So I find the gym really helpful from a, from a rest perspective. So glasses of wine per week. What do we add? <laughs> I am not answering that question. <laughs> I'm too much. Yeah. I'd like to say that I'm probably at like, I'd say if you average it out, probably around like two glasses a day, I'd say somewhere around there. I think the recommended limit is like two glasses, five days a week. I'm definitely over that. There've been a lot of like, really, this is like one of my favorite stories of all time, but this guy looked into the research on why it's recommended that you drink less than that. Like the, the two glasses of wine, five days a week. It's because if you drink more than that, you're actually way more likely to get drunk and hurt yourself. It's not actually the alcohol that's causing the problems. It's more likely that you're going to like fall down the stairs or like get in a fight is essentially like why that number is set where it's at. It's not because it's doing damage to your liver. The amount that you have to drink to actually like do damage to your body is actually astonishingly high. I think it was Michael Broadbent who said it, but uh, you know, a classic wine writer and he volunteered to, to have somebody do like a, you know, like a liver biopsy or something oh, wow. like that. And they were like, how much do you drink a day? And he's like, at least a bottle of wine a day for the past 70 years. He's like a bottle of wine a day for the last 70 years and usually a bottle and a half. He's like, usually I'll drink a half bottle at lunch, full bottle at dinner. And they did a test on his liver and like, you're actually fine. You're hundred percent fine. Your liver is like totally within the normal parameters. Again, I'm not recommending that people do that, <laughs> but I'm just saying that like the, the study is, is very different, but yeah, I'm probably at, you know, if you average it out to two glasses a day, I, d I definitely like during the lockdown when I was digging into my cellar a little bit, it was definitely like a bottle, bottle a day, but, but yeah, probably over the week, like a couple of glasses a day. I'm pretty liberal about my wine drinking. So. <laughs> I'm not going to lie about it. My parents aren't listening to this. I don't think so. Do, do you, each of you have a wine that's most exciting to you that's available right now in the market that, that Dave and I could go get a bottle and uh, drink tonight? I want or? that champagne. Yeah. 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 Christophe so Mignon. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah we'll get, definitely we'll get checking that. out. Yeah. I'd say like the most iconic producer for us is definitely Gut Ogau, uh from Austria. And those wines are consistently... If you want a cerebral experience, those are the ultimate go-to. If you want just something that's like a really nice introduction to what natural wine can be and not, you know, fully dive off the deep end of weird flavors, I'd say Brock Sellers Love Red is a really great place to start. Intelego's Kadungu, really amazing little South African wine, about 30 bucks, really sort of universally appealing, but still very interesting. And on the white side, Meinklein Gruner Veltliner. I think that's like the ultimate sort of introduction to, you know, sub $30 biodynamically farmed, amazing permaculture, amazing winemaking, but still classic flavors that everybody's going to really like. Yeah. And I'd say anything by Peter Vetzer. He's our Hungarian producer. Well, yeah, we, we could do an entire podcast just on stories about him and his winemaking facility. <laughs> I say that very lightly, um, but his wines just blow my mind consistently with what he's able to do there. It's great as a as a Juice Imports Club subscriber. I can picture each of those bottles. Oh yeah, yeah we, we had a it's Keck Francos from yeah. from Peter. How do you say yeah. his last name? Vetzer. Vetzer. Uh, Vetzer yeah. we, we had a bottle of that on Monday at Ten Foot Henry. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. They I have it on the list it. there. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. wine. Love yeah. that wine. So so good. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And again, universally appealing. I think anybody who would have that bottle of wine who likes red wine would be like, this is delicious but also interesting. Where can people find you guys online? Where can they buy your wine? Instagram is a, like, is a great place to find us. So we're just at Juice Imports. Our website is 
chock full of information. If you're looking for like a guide to the Okanagan, we've written our own personalized guide to the Okanagan for finding natural wineries in, in the Okanagan. I have my personal philosophy on tasting on there and the whole way that I go through tasting. So if you're looking for information like that or information on producers or particular wines, random playlists. Yeah. We, we have our own, uh, Spotify account. We have a bunch of wine drinking playlists that are really great. Those are all on our website, which is just www.juiceimports.com. So that's really great. If you're looking for our wines, we have links to every single wine and where to find it on our website. So if, if you just go to a random page and like, oh, I want to try something from Austria. Oh, look, mine Klang. I'll try something from them. And you click on one of the wines, it'll show you the the closest place that's recently ordered it. So that's really convenient, but I'd say top three places to look for natural wine in the city, definitely Bricks, Kensington Wine Market, and uh, Vine Arts. Uh, again, because I worked there for so long, we obviously have a really amazing relationship with them. And then we also do have a wine club that we curate every month as well. Uh, I know there are some natural wine club uh, participants, <laughs> Members, yeah. uh, you know, present, but yeah, it's essentially three bottles of wine every month created by myself. You actually get a podcast with it as well too. So you get somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes of me rambling about, you know, whatever wine we included in it. It's usually stuff that's pretty exclusive. So stuff that, you know, we don't have a ton of extra bottles for the shelf. Yeah. And that's uh, available through our website as well. Uh, pickup location is in Calgary. It's at Vine Arts. And then we also do it in Edmonton and Lethbridge. So uh, we have got options all across Alberta. Yeah, send us an email. Give us a, a DM on Instagram. We love chatting with people, love tasting things. Always available to answer questions. Yeah. About anything or educate or just like. A lot of our friends over the last couple of years have come from like tastings where we've done a tasting and then somebody asks us questions afterwards and we're like, hey, do you want to go for more wine now? And we just end up being friends with them. Like that's how we find people to hang out with essentially. <laughs> so it's a good way of doing it. <laughs> Cool. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. Yeah, for this is wonderful. And thanks for the like insane coffee. I, I was going to talk to Eric afterwards. This, this tasted like Strohmeyer to me. Oh yeah, yeah, nice. Like yeah. actual actual coffee that kind of like bridges emulates the gap. natural wine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cool. Wow, you made it. Thanks for listening to Buy the Drip. If you enjoyed the conversation today or found value in it, if you could please share the podcast with friends and family, that'd be so helpful for us to grow the podcast. As always, please subscribe, rate, and give us a comment. That would mean so much to me. Till next time.